It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I'm your show host, Randy Fine. Are you distracting or disconnecting from any of eight specific emotions? Sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, embarrassment, disappointment, frustration, or vulnerability? Or are you allowing yourself to feel them? Today's special guest, Joan Rosenberg, Ph.D., author of 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity, and an innovative and leading-edge psychologist with 40 years of clinical practice combining neuroscience and cognitive and emotion-focused therapy, has found that confidence has everything to do with your ability to know you can handle unpleasant emotions. Dr. Joan Rosenberg, a cutting-edge psychologist and professor at Pepperdine University, is known as an innovative thinker, speaker, and trainer. She is a three-time TEDx speaker and a member of the Association of Transformational Leaders who has been seen on CNN's American Morning Show, own PBS stations nationally, along with numerous other appearances, TV, radio, and print media. Good morning, Joan. Good morning, Dr. Rosenberg. What would you prefer me to call you? Yeah, oh, that's fine. Either one is fine. Thank you so much. <laughs> good morning to you. Good, good morning and welcome. Thank you for being my guest today. Um, so I have your beautiful book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, in front of me, which is flagged. Mm-hmm. I have only gotten through half of it, and I have about 50 flags. <laughs> so um, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about. But anyway. Awesome. Yeah. Um, You know, in Chapter 1, you say, the challenge is that most people believe that life is doing something to them. This is such an important sentence, um, and I'd love for you to elaborate on that. You know, when we we start out and when we're young, but it it actually can carry through to long through adult life, is that we have this notion that that when we experience especially difficult things or traumatic things, painful things, that life's doing something to us and that we're, we're a victim of our circumstances and victim of our conditions. And it takes a bit of time to understand that we can learn from those experiences And then it takes probably even more time to understand that if we have a a bigger vision for our life and a bigger drive, that that we can actually co-create with life as opposed to have the experience of being a victim to it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a process that occurs over time, and not everybody gets there. Uh, but there, there really is uh, a way to. Uh, it's like you're, when your when your level of awareness grows and your awareness, kind of your level of consciousness grows about life, and and kind of the, if you will, having an understanding that much of life has to do with our our growth and evolution, then that shift can begin to occur, and then over time, then you begin to have the sense you, you can co-create with life. Mm. So important for us to understand this um, because, yeah, when things, bad things happen, we always say, what did I do? What did I do in my past life? Is this karma? You know, why am I being punished? But I think it's so important for us to know that it, it's, life is not doing something to us. You talk about living life by default or living life by design, and I think this is pretty much the same thing, right? Um, and in essence, yes, because one gives in to those conditions or circumstances 
and and doesn't and and then you don't pursue things. Uh, or one aspect of it is that you don't pursue things, or you have the attitude that it, it doesn't matter if I have something good happen because something bad happen, something bad will follow that, and and so and that's just kind of the way it is. And then you link those things together, and and again, there's no growth, there's no there's no curiosity, there's no real big evolution that occurs, and so you just kind of give in to life, uh, and without thinking, there's any any real sense of empowerment that you can influence life in any way. But once you start to create some vision of what you want and you're willing to persist in that pursuit, then you start to notice that things change. And, and so that's, that's really the, the thing that I want people to have an understanding of is that I want them to pursue things and and I want them to to then have the experience of oh wait a minute I can kind of co-create here what what do I want what am I willing to invest in you know and when you talk about co-creating I mean we've all heard of the secret and all those kind of things about manifesting mm-hmm. but this is not what you're talking about I mean this is you have a much more um, logical and concrete approach to this. You say that the essential um, keys to developing confidence, feeling emotionally strong and being resilient, um, involve an openness to change, a positive attitude toward pain. That's going to perk up a lot of ears, a willingness to learn from any experience and a capacity to experience and express unpleasant feelings. What is it about pain that's so important for us to embrace? Here's here's the thing that I found when uh, and I've spent better than 40 years as a psychologist and and working with people over that length of time and what I found is that people who had a difficult time handling unpleasant feelings actually didn't feel like they could handle life very well and as a result they would um they would experience failure and then and then kind of distort their thinking and see themselves as a failure they would back off from pursuits they would not take risks they would um, pull themselves out of relationships and then they when when difficult stuff happened or even when good stuff happened they didn't feel that necessarily that capable of, of making their way through it so I began to really dial into the kind of the eight unpleasant feelings you read at the beginning of the show, at the top of the show, and and found that if one could be able to lean into or tolerate uh, that pain, and the pain is the unpleasant feelings, uh, then you got so much better at handling life and you were willing to go after the things you wanted in life. So that's, yeah. mm-hmm. Go ahead. That's, so that's that's the importance of the pain. Right. What sets us up for for this kind of um, lack of abil- lack of ability to tolerate discomfort in our life? Uh, well, at this point, we're we're enticed with countless different distractions. Um, but you know, part of that is is really linked to or our early life experiences. So kind of what we, what we were taught about feeling, what we were taught about expression, um, how we were attuned to or responded to or the lack thereof, the degree of trauma, uh, all those different kinds of things are contributors. So there's a, there's a kind of a long list in terms of what will lead people to kind of back off from wanting to experience something. And, and then the other part of it that I also realized has to do with just having an understanding of of how we feel and what makes it easier for us to actually stay with the feeling so that we can learn from that, the experience and the feeling. Thank you. So you've trademarked um, the Rosenberg Reset, which is based on a simple Uh formula. (laughs) One choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. Wow. Um, So can you elaborate on that? What exactly this is about sure yeah no i i have to defer to the colleague that called it the rosenberg reset and it just landed <laughs> well so i i didn't name it. i didn't name it he did the the rosenberg reset is really the think of it as kind of the 
the method or the formula, if you will, for leaning into unpleasant feelings. And, and it's one choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. The one choice has to do with awareness as opposed to avoidance. And I'm wanting someone to choose awareness, which means being as aware of and in touch with as much of one's moment-to-moment experience as possible. And the avoidance looks like social media, screens, TV, sex, porn, food, shopping, uh, having feelings about having feelings. Uh, I mean, the list goes on for, I think I have probably 35 or some odd number like that in the book in terms of the kinds of distractions we can engage in. And, and so I, I don't want people to be, in, you know, engaging in all those distractions. I want people to lean into that, the awareness. So that's the one choice, the awareness. The second part of the eight feelings, which you mentioned, but uh, just very quickly, again, there is sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. Why these eight? Uh, which is the, really the most common question I get for that because people will notice that anxiety and fear aren't there for, as a quick, for instance. And it's these eight because uh, they're the most, in my mind, they're the most common everyday spontaneous reactions to things not turning out, not, I'm sorry, to things not turning out the way that we want or the way we believe they need to be. And, and so it's the everydayness of the experience that is why I chose the eight. And then the, the, the third part, the 90 seconds, has to do with uh, the actual the more specific method. And it's really coming with the understanding that, the, um, that we're one interconnected whole and that our brain is always feeding information to our body and our body is always feeding information to our brain. So, and, and that wholeness is important because the the way most of us come to understand and to know what we feel emotionally is through bodily sensation. So, for instance, if you were to look at me and I was embarrassed, you'd see the redness of probably in my face. I would feel the heat of bodily sense of the bodily sensation, and that's how I know I'm embarrassed. And because I, I associate then this heat in my face with the word embarrassment and over time I learned that and that's then that's that's what happens so the key here is that I realize that it's not that we don't want to feel the whole range of what we feel uh, it's that we don't want to feel the bodily sensation that helps us know what we feel hmm. and it's that's the thing that that's the thing that I believe most people try to distract from so if people are drinking or using substances or whatever it is to get away from the feeling, they're, they're trying to get away from the bodily sensation that helps them know the feeling. And, and then the 90 seconds part then, this is, that's where the 90 seconds comes in, understanding that feelings are transient and they come and go, just like ocean waves kind of come and go uh, up against the shoreline. And it's, so this understanding is ebb and flow and that any given bodily sensation wave lasts roughly an upper limit of about 90 seconds. So, so my thing is that I want people to be able to ride one or more bodily sensation waves, short-lived bodily sensation waves, in order to lean into difficult feelings. Okay. So that's the one choice, one choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. And so then you say, you know, when you explain this, you always yes. get the question that, you know, their feelings seem to last so much longer than 90 seconds. And, and so right. you explain this about, you know, increased cortisol and why we ruminate. So I think it would be great for you to elaborate on that. Absolutely. I, you know, and I think I've, I've thought of, I've, uh, there's a couple more that I, that I realized in terms of, um, what what ends, also ends up happening with the lingering feelings, but but the three the three that I note in the ninety seconds book are um, this idea that first of all we try to suppress what we what we're thinking and uh, consequently feeling, so that so that the it, it's and that sounds like well I'm just not going to think about it, 
Well, if I ask you not to think of a blue tree, you actually have to think of the blue tree to then try not to think about it. So saying to yourself, well, I'm just not going to think about it, it never works, to think about the thing, to try to suppress it. So, so what ends up happening is that we actually think more about that stuff that we're trying to not think about. Um, so that doesn't work, but it creates the sense of lingering feelings. The second one is just that having an understanding that when we repeat certain thoughts or we repeat certain memories, whatever feelings are associated with those thoughts or memories, uh, that that's all attached. It's all linked together, like popcorn on a string. It's, they're all linked together. So you don't get just to pull up the thought. You pull up the thought with its accompanied, like, everything that accompanies the thought, which include the feelings. And as a result, the more you keep on repeating those memories and thoughts, the more you keep on repeating the feeling, and that gives you another way that um, that it feels like it's lingering. And then the third way that I have mentioned in the book is harsh self-criticism. And I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of harsh self-criticism, and and but my experience is that it keeps activating the unpleasant feelings that are actually underneath the harsh self-criticism. So that again, the more you beat yourself up the more you end up feeling like feelings, unpleasant feelings linger. You know, I've discovered the exact same thing in my work, that um, that's really one of the things that keeps us in this holding pattern of pain is what we say Absolutely. to ourselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, it's, and I, I feel like I get a soap on a soapbox when I talk about uh, this idea of harsh self-criticism. Because I think it's singularly one of the most self-destructive things we can we end up doing to ourselves. I agree. So it's you know yeah right. And, and if you've been you know um, I work with a lot of um, emotionally abused people, and you know if you've suffered abuse at the hands of someone else, and then you're no longer with that person, generally you tend to just carry it on by yourself, and um, <laughs> you know instead of letting it go, you you just take it and you just run with it. And um, it's really important, I think. This is a really important point. Um, what is wrong, and I think you did mention this, but um, what is wrong with um, suppression of our feelings? What happens when we suppress them? Uh, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of things. You ba- I mean, that, that list probably is kind of long. You back off from taking risks. You, um, the, the feelings sometimes turn into toxic, what I would call toxic versions. So instead of something being anger or disappointment, now you're resentful and bitter. Um, and and the more that because it's just sitting in you and it's not getting worked through, and that it it comprom- so it comprom- it can compromise your health. Uh, I have a friend that loves to say that what doesn't get emotionalized gets physicalized. So then then it can lead into bodily complaints. It can lead in, in and uh, you know lots of physical distress. Um, there's uh, it can turn into anxiety. It can turn into uh, – it, it becomes an experience, I think, the bigger experience and the more concerning experience over time, and I'm talking about a long period of time, is that I think it leads to something I call soulful depression. Um, so and more anxiety, more isolation, and ultimately soulful depression, which for me is we feel disconnected from ourselves. And it compromises if we're not being expressive in those ways and dealing with our feelings, then uh, it also ultimately compromises relationships. So, and compromises our authenticity. So the list is a very, very long list in terms of the, the ill effects, if you will, of just allowing feelings to kind of fester in us and not to deal with them, and then ultimately also when we don't express them. Right, and they, they do, they will break through in some way. You know, we cannot suppress yes. things forever. They will, whether it's right. emotional or physical or whatever. Um, yes. So, so do you find that when you, when um, people understand that emotions, feelings are waves, and that within ninety seconds they can go, do you find that it helps people accept that more? 
Yes, I do. I think once people have the understanding that what they're trying to get away from is a bodily sensation wave and they understand that it's short-lived, and again, it's not one 90-second wave. In fact, oftentimes feelings are shorter than that. Um, The experience of that bodily sensation wave is shorter, um, but they understand it's one or more and they they test it out. I've been told many times people go, well, I didn't believe it, but I kind of tested it out, and 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 it works. And and they go, okay, all right. Now, then they start to lean into it. They get more curious, and they start to lean into other experiences just like that. And and most people have the, the sense that they go, well, I can do 90 seconds. So, you know, 90 seconds doesn't seem like as much a big deal, and now it feels manageable. So when people have an understanding that those two pieces that, oh, we're talking about a bodily sensation wave, I can handle the bodily sensation, and it's short-lived, then, then people are willing to experiment with it. And then they find that it actually really works. And, and the beautiful part of this, which is one of the things that excites me so much, is that there's a natural organic lift and a greater sense of wholeness once somebody starts to lean into the unpleasant feelings that they used to back off of, back off and away from. Hmm. Well, that's a positive. Um, that's that's you know, great. It's people. Yeah, it's a, it's a just this surprising outcome because now they they feel better because they're actually being more true to themselves. Very true. So. A lot of people who listen to my show are people who have had um, trauma, complex trauma. And you say that um, intense emotional experiences involving, involving feelings such as fear, profound grief, terror, rage uh, may linger. And that the 90-second approach may be helpful for relieving these post-traumatic stress responses, but it is not intended for these kinds of experiences. So what's the difference? The difference really, again, what I have found is that certainly the approach is quite useful. But, but, you know, two things. One is in terms of writing the book, um, I didn't want to misrepresent and and say this was going to work for everybody because that's not true. And and certainly the the key around the, the kind of the words that you named or the experiences you named is that when we experience trauma or terror, it encodes in the brain differently than everyday experiences. So that when we're in a, a frightened or a terrified state, um, the amygdala, the, 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 you know, the, the, the most central part that's involved in our fight or flight response, it gets involved in, and memories get encoded differently. So it's, it's I, you know, almost, you can almost sort of think of it as, as something like a cattle being branded. It's like seared into the brain differently. So it, it, takes, it takes more potentially more effort, more understanding, more working through other kinds of modalities uh, to be able to relieve oneself from the, the kind of that traumatic memory. So, right. so that, that's, that's really why I, want to, I make the distinction in and kind of that the phrase you read. Yeah, thank you. That that really does um, explain it, and I agree with that. Uh, so you you know you we talked a little bit earlier about what influences our feelings, and um, and you say that you know simply put, we generally develop an emotional range that can encompass encompass that of our parents and caretakers, um, and you cite Dr. Dan. Um, Siegel. Siegel. He says that, yep. yeah, he believes that how a parent has made sense of his or her own childhood pain has much to do with how that individual responds when parenting his or her own children. This right. is so true. Um, you know, many people think that they, that the way that they, um, or the, the, the unresolved issues that they've had in their life, that they can sort of hide them and that their children will not suffer the, you know, the, the experience of them having not resolved them. But that is not true, and this is a perfect example of why, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, the, real, the reality is, is that, you know, let, let's say 
my parent withdrew from conflict. And that was one of the things that I learned. Or or we didn't talk about feelings in my household. Then then and and or feelings when they occurred got shut down quickly. Then if I'm practicing that over time, because that's what I've learned in my household, then when I start to get into uh, relationships, whether they're friendships in teen years or friendships in adult years um, or, or an intimate relationship, that, and, and now I'm in conflict or now I have unpleasant feelings about something that's occurring, uh, then I, there's what I might just ad- uh, adopt is what I experienced. So I back off and, and, I don't, and I do the thing that I learned when I was younger. Now I'm raising my own kids and I'm repeating that, then, then now I'm influencing the child in the same way that I was influenced when I was young. But we don't, we don't necessarily, again, bring that level of awareness and that level of consciousness to our parenting. But it's, it's true. We, we are very much impacted by how, how we were raised. Now, can we change that? Absolutely. But, it, again, that takes awareness and work. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's so where that, we just that to, word awareness, yeah, yeah, we, right. Yeah. yeah. We just have to be willing to put in the emotional, kind of emotional effort to the emotional work to to choose differently and to respond differently. Right. So I like that you say um, the commitment to awareness rather than avoidance as your immediate response to emotions makes all the difference. That sentence really um, holds a lot of power. Because it really is a mindset of how we're going to respond. Um, so make the commitment to be aware rather than avoid. Um, and you say, this is the one choice I ask you to make. Um, so reset is the choice you ask everybody to make every day, right? At whenever, whenever something comes up that you find, especially that you find difficult to experience. Absolutely, yes. Every, every day... And every time you need to use it, yes. But but again, what I have found is that if people will do it, it starts to become life changing. And 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 the and the beauty of the, the beauty of kind of uh, uh, the approach that that I've outlined in the ninety seconds book is that is that the moment you learn something is the moment you can apply it. So if you, if you understand that, okay, it's about awareness, not avoidance, and, oh, wait a minute, it, I don't like the bodily sensation, and that's why I'm backing off, okay, let me, let me experiment, let me just be curious, let me try it out, and, and as soon as you learn it, you can put it into play. It's, I think it's so, so, it's so powerful. It's so, it's so simple and so um, impactful, I think. Uh, that, thank you. That, that's as over the years, that's been my experience. Yeah. So let's talk about the eight difficult feelings, just kind of briefly. And um, and and so let's first talk about sadness. Why is sadness so painful? Well, again, sadness for most of us is attached to some experience of loss. Um, for me, it's one of the that, that there's again four of the eight are key components of of grief for me. So that so that it, it also puts us into um, it, it's it's dealing with something that was it, we were invested in and 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 tied to loss and and so it's it's particularly painful um, you know it's heartbreak <laughs> so right. Uh, right and we all experience yeah. that at some point um, what about Absolutely. shame yeah general shame often results from perceived social rejection or feeling as though one's self esteem or social status has been threatened. Um, does everybody experience shame at some point in their life? I, I probably most of us do. I think it's one of the hardest ones for uh, for most people. Um, the the and the, here's the understanding in general in terms of the way people think about shame and guilt because there's a, people people differentiate the two. Um, and I have other things to say about guilt that actually aren't in the book, but. Um, but guilt usually people will understand as I've done something bad, and shame gets tied to the idea that I am bad, or mm. I'm flawed in some way, and and so the the hard part is that many people get kind of locked into 
this experience of shame, that they are bad. Somehow they think they're bad and flawed. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's not true. And, and it's really the key here becomes helping people move away from that. The other th- challenge that I've seen, again, also since I wrote the book, is that I actually see shame as a little bit of a combined experience of, of, of it, it is a physiological experience that, we, that most of us have. But I also think that there's judgment attached to it with this idea that I am bad. So there's some harsh self-criticism that gets, for me, gets linked in with this idea of shame or the experience of shame. Yeah, that makes sense. What's the difference between general shame and core shame? Um, again, general shame is, think of it as, as, we're talking about things that were more transitory. Think of general shame as, um, as a little bit more transitory. Uh, and the core shame often comes out of traumatic experiences uh, mm-hmm. and abuse, and uh, where you you over uh, again uh, over some stretch of time uh, that you come to you come to believe that you are this very bad, very flawed person, and then mm-hmm. that you kind of live with that core experience of yourself as you as you age. Right. So it's a it's a, it's a deeper, much deeper experience of shame. Right. And it's not necessarily, you know, because um, a lot of my clients, you know, feel, have shame. And yet it's not really related to anything, um, you know, it, that, that is relevant to their life today. But it, it does right. stick with right. you, right? Okay, yeah. so yeah. helplessness, helplessness, oh, that's, you know, that's not a good feeling to have. Um, to feel like you have no control. So let's talk about right. that a little bit. Well, you know what? I, I often think of that one as also being tied to an experience of feeling vulnerable. Okay. That, um, that, again, that, we're, that we're, we're disempowered. We don't, that we have the sense that we don't have any influence or impact on what's taking place. And, and again, it, it's, it's difficult in those ways because it, it does then, to your point, lead to that sense of feeling like I have no control. Right. Uh, and that's very, it's very hard for most of us. It is. And let's talk a little bit about control because we don't, I mean, I guess we, we need to have some sort of mastery over our, you know, our emotions and the way that we deal with them. But control is a whole different thing. And, um, how do you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, how do you see, I mean, do we need well, to feel... I have a different point of view about... Okay, so let me hear Let me hear that. I want to hear that. that. No, I have a different point of view about control. Um, because when, when people talk about being a control freak or they're, you know, so set on things being organized a certain way or that or certain events have to occur a particular way or they... Um, they contort and twist themselves so that the uh, that they're trying to influence a certain outcome that all those kinds of things actually have to do with someone not wanting to experience unpleasant feelings so the way that i look at control is that it's actually an effort to prevent feeling and and so anybody who identifies as a control freak is probably having a more difficult time dealing with unpleasant feelings, doesn't want to experience them, and puts all the efforts at uh, everything they can do to control a situation, experience, person, etc., in order to not actually have to feel the unpleasantness that, that arises spontaneously when we experience life. That's right. And... And those of us who are um, who feel like we have to control every aspect of our life, what we what we essentially do is put blocks in in the path of our life because it interrupts that natural flow, that wave that you you know you talk about us riding. So it's um it's not a real thing. We 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 don't have a whole lot of control, but you know at least I guess control versus mastery or understanding of our own feelings are two different things then. Yeah, well, yeah. So the way I would have someone understand it is that when 
you, let, again, let's say you uh, had a, a lunch date with a friend. Lunch, and the person at ten minutes into to the lunch date says, "Oops, not going to be able to make it," and you're sitting there waiting. Uh, so there's reactions you're likely to have: anger, disappointment, sadness, whatever it might be. And, uh, and the mastery part would be going, "Okay, I, you have the reaction." The control part would be to you might start thinking. Uh, and and or planning or 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 you do lots of planning ahead so that this doesn't happen or I, there's efforts in the one case the mastery is going to involve you experiencing and moving through what's taken what you're experiencing and in the control part you're going to try to shut it down in some way so you might pick up your phone and start to look at um, social media to, as a way to get out of it you might have a, a drink to get out of it or, or something else. Um, anything that, that makes an effort to stop the experience is where the control is coming in. And, and okay. so that's why I think about it as preventing the feeling, an effort okay. to prevent feeling. Yeah, thank you. That's really, you, you explain that very well. Okay, so the next one is anger. And you say that it serves two primary functions. It's a protective response uh-huh. and it facilitates social communication. Um, anger is someone, something that people have a really hard time modulating. They, um, some people either can't control it or can't feel it at all. So um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about anger and what this is about. Yeah, well, the, I, in the book what I talk about is this idea of the difference between expressing anger and doing anger. And I, I, think, I do think one's expression of anger is very very much misunderstood and mishandled. And the, so the idea here for me is that if I were to say to you, you know what, that made me really angry, that would be expressing anger. And because you would know that I was angry. I didn't have to do anything beyond that to tell you and for you to understand it. But if I escalate in any way so that I start raising my voice I start um, screaming, I start yelling, I start throwing things, I call you names, I insult you, I'm mean and cruel, what, I, I ex- extend it to physicality uh, and being physical, uh, physically aggressive. And all that to me is doing anger. So anything that has to do with escalating has to do with doing anger as opposed to expressing anger. Okay. Uh, I can go into that more. But, um, yeah, I mean, you talk but, about modulating yeah. your anger, and you say that you have companion worksheets and guided exercises and resources at your website, um, drjoanrosenberg.com slash resources90. So um, if people want to go further into that, then um, maybe they can explore that. The next one would be disappointment. Again, it's often associated with loss. It's, it's okay. uh, There's some somewhat similar to... Um, to sadness, um, and and again, I but I, I do again think of think of with uh, with disappointment and with sadness. Think of and actually also with anger that you've been invested in something that that you have uh, and you know and that could be invested in the pursuit of a goal. It could be invested in a relationship. It doesn't matter where the investment is. And that, that when something doesn't turn out the way that we would like um, and, and we put this level of investment into something, then we have the experiences that are um, like sadness, like disappointment and, or anger. Right. Do, um, I'm trying to think about... Um, you know, feelings of not being attached to outcomes. Um, is there a way to avoid disappointment? Uh, in all? terms of, well, the, I don't have any expectations. That's is right. what most okay. people will. I think is what most people will say is that the, the, if you if you don't if you don't want to be disappointed, then then don't have any expectations. So. Right. Um, so it's not, and that's that's the hard part. Is that we come into, um, you know, we we expect something, we anticipate something, 
um, and um, then, you know, we're met with something we don't want to face. Um, you know, if we don't we don't get the the result we want. Uh, then then we get often get disappointed. Um, so again, but but it's unrealistic to think that we won't go into aspects of life or experiences without having some measure of expectations. Okay. Um, so right. So so if you can stay more open and go and and not go in with an expectation of a given outcome, but you can stay more open and gonna and say, okay, I'm gonna come into this experience and I'm gonna go in with curiosity, which frankly is a great way to live life. Um, is to is to hold the attitude of curiosity, then then that can make uh, a big difference, um, and and so you're just going to be curious, but you're not going to you're not going to hold for a particular outcome. That sounds like a really healthy way to approach things. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. Okay. So then, all right, frustration. Oh, we, everybody experiences frustration. There's some days where you just don't have the tolerance that you have on other days or for whatever reason. Um, so, you know, you say physiologically frustration is associated with high levels of arousal or activation of the acute stress response, the fight or flight. What, so let's elaborate a little bit on that. What is frustration about you know, I, it's interestingly, if I make it really practical, I really see frustration as a combo of anger and disappointment hmm. or a combo of anger and sadness, more disappointment than sadness. Um, but and so that so the frustration, again, again, same thing. It's a reflection to me, reflects that I've been invest, invested in something and that um, – it didn't turn out, and as a result of it not turning out, I'm feeling kind of this combined experience of being angry that it didn't turn out, and that I'm also disappointed it didn't turn out. So, uh, so that that for me, it's it's really uh, to, to simplify it for me, it's really about uh, some combined experience of anger and disappointment. Um, but the the beauty of it is 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 that if we're if we're also super invested in something or super motivated or we're in pursuit of something then then uh, and and in so much of this uh, success in general i look at as um that we that we either get frustrated on our way to success or we get disappointed on our way to success so that so that it's it's building in that um kind of building an awareness that that when you're invested in something and want to pursue something, that you're likely to experience um, feelings like frustration, and that you just build it in as uh, part of the journey. Right. Absolutely. And then there is vulnerability, and you talk about non-conscious and versus conscious vulnerability. What are the differences? Right. Right. Um, Non-conscious vulnerability is this idea that all of us are vulnerable all of the time, meaning that virtually any given thing can happen to any one of us at any point in time. We might get a phone call with bad news. Um, We might be in the wrong place at the wrong time. We might um, slip and fall. Um, anything and it's just odd odd circumstance we we move funny and we twist our knee and then something happens right so that 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 the truth is is that we're all vulnerable all of the time but we try it most of us try not to have even any awareness of that and and so that's why I call it non-conscious vulnerability conscious vulnerability is when we maintain some level of awareness of our vulnerability, um, and or, or and, and vulnerability I'm talking about is kind of this this sense or awareness that we could be hurt, and and the conscious is is that we we go into things with an awareness that we know we can be hurt. So let's mm. say I want to I want to develop um, I want to I want to become a musician and play in front of crowds or in front of an audience. Well, I, I'm going to have to choose into learning the skill and and hand, handling the, the whatever frustrations and experience it takes for me to learn the skill. 
And then when I'm first in front of people, um, I might get embarrassed or I might get disappointed about the way it turned out. And I have to be willing to allow myself to experience those other feelings that are associated with being out in the open and being vulnerable in front of a group. And so the conscious vulnerability is, uh, to me, is when I'm making choices um, to put myself out there pursuing something no matter what it is and whether it's a public or non-public. Do you think that it's important for us to accept some of the vulnerabilities that we have about ourselves, you know, um, rather than be shamed about them, embarrassed about them, we all have certain vulnerabilities that um, we approach life with. And, you know, I think it's important that we come to an acceptance of some of those things rather than trying to feel like we have to be these perfect, uh, um, resilient beings all the time. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, the part of the way I approach life is to maintain what I call a low level of awareness of vulnerability all the time. So instead of it being non-conscious to me, I make the non-conscious vulnerability conscious. So that, so that, and what, what does that do? So if I have an awareness on a daily basis that, that I'm, you know, I'm not guaranteed this day, then then hopefully I will make choices throughout the day that are more aligned with who I really want to be and the values that I hold. So I think, it, I think it's extremely important to maintain an awareness of it. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be really kind of frank here. I have a parent that uh, just made it across three digits. She's 100. <laughs> now, the, the obvious... And even as she was into her 90s, more so her 90s, because she, um, right. was, I mean, she still she still lives alone. So um, wow. So, but am I conscious of what that means? Heck yeah! On a daily basis, I'm conscious of what that means. So, uh, and and so it's to me maintaining that level of awareness is important because it has implications. For, so in this case, whether it's her vulnerability in terms of where she is in her life stage or my vulnerability relative to her vulnerability, knowing that the loss is going to come. Right. Right. Is, it may, oh. maintain, just allows me to live a slightly deeper, slightly richer life because I'm willing to put myself out there in certain ways that if I didn't maintain that level of awareness, I'm not going to make the same choices. You're right. So, you know, it's, it, and, you know, I like people to be up to date with love. So it's, you know, it's, so every day, uh, it, you know, if there are people that are important to me, and I'm going to want them to know that I care deeply about them or I love them. Why? Because, because the, that vulnerability. It, and it's because I know that no, no day, no day is guaranteed for any one of us. Right. So, so to me, that, that idea, in this case, it would be making the non-conscious vulnerability um, bring that into conscious awareness and, and, and make use of that. But keep it at a low level so you can still function. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think people are afraid to have vulnerabilities. You know, um, they tend to measure themselves against other people and think that nobody, you know, nobody has vulnerabilities, but we all have them. Um, and, and we all, yes. Yes. Right. We all have them. Yes. Okay. And yes. okay. So the next thing I want to talk about is um, emotional regulation. Regulation, in which you um, quote, uh, you say Dr. Dan Siegel describes as the window of tolerance. What is you know what is this about? How do we go about doing this? Um, again, if we come back to this idea of the bodily sensations, then then what I'm really wanting people to do is in most cases is to expand their ability to tolerate the discomfort of these bodily sensations. And, and so um, the notion is that um, that you want to be able to experience 
um, what, whatever you go through, whatever life events you know happen or life situations or conditions that you're in, that you can experience those without becoming, um, without it disrupting your function, so that you don't get. Um, so same thing that uh, you're. Uh, let, let's go back to the example I was using of the friend that's uh, ten minutes in says you're sitting there, but ten minutes in says they're not going to make it to. Um, to the lunch date and and you could blow up and and you know pick up the phone call the person and start you know trashing them which would be kind of a pretty escalated response to a, a, a disappointment and now it's disrupted your function because you're 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 out of control if you will with with your your reaction it's an intense hyper kind of hyper what Dan would call a hyper-aroused reaction or, or maybe a flooded reaction with, with, flooded with feelings and reacting that way. Or you could go the opposite direction and shut down. And, and, uh, and, so, and that, those are really the two major choices we have, we, you know, or, or two experiences we lean into if we're, we're not regulating ourselves well, is that we get flooded and then we escalate um, and and get out a little bit overreactive and out of control, or we shut down and kind of numb out and disconnect that way um, because we're flooded in the other direction. So the the idea is that in terms of that window of tolerance is that you want to be able to handle all these kind of things that happen in life without getting so dysregulated in either a shutdown experience or uh, this overreactive kind of experience or explosive experience and that instead you can handle, you have a window of tolerance that you've been able to develop this expanded range, if you will. So window of tolerance, think expanded range of being able to handle whatever feelings are occurring without you, you again, drifting up into explosiveness or down into disconnection and shutting down. Right. It's just the healthy modulation of feelings. Yep. So the last, um, the last thing, because we're going to run out of time, but I wanted to just go over the six steps to reclaim your, reclaim your personal power because um, you have um, you offer a step by step method to change the way that we think. So the first one is notice the times you're worrying or thinking about what other people are thinking about you, um, and you call this an outside in thinking pattern. Um, right. Can you explain that? Yeah, um, the same thing. What I what I would watch, uh, watch. I would listen to so many clients that I I had talk about worrying about what other people thought of them. And and what I start, so again, I'm trying to dig in. How do I help somebody kind of solve that? And what I realized is that for me, the first part of uh, first part of that is understanding that when you are worrying about and and i'm going to add another word in here what you think other people think then you're actually distracting yourself from the experience of vulnerability and and so when you're trying to behave in life um looking through somebody else's eyes before you look through your own eyes i call it outside in thinking oh so important to understand that Right and, and so yeah. and uh, right so outside in thinking is going to lead you to to behave in ways that sort of have you as a con, kind of a, a a kind of a pretzel person you're con, kind of contorting yourself <laughs> twisting yourself to be what you think other people want you to be and generally yeah. other people don't don't care that much <laughs> about, no they're actually about what they're you actually say what you do right exactly they're doing the same thing you're doing. They're worrying about what you think of them, <laughs> but it's but all of that, but it doesn't serve anybody, and I think it's a distraction from the experience of being vulnerable. So, okay. so my thing is, I want you to think from the inside out. So you're looking through your eyes, and you're asking yourself questions like, "What do I want? What do I need? <clears throat> what am I thinking? What am I feeling in the moment, right now?" and That'll bring you kind of into the, excuse me, into your own center, and and now you're looking through your own eyes as opposed to looking through someone else's. 
Okay. And so the second one is ask yourself, what makes me think that others are spending so much time thinking about me, which is just kind of what I said, you know, and um, it's impossible to, to be well adjusted if you're constantly worrying about how other people are seeing you. Um, you know, everybody has flaws, everybody has issues, nobody's perfect, and, and everybody's out there trying to figure it out. We're all trying to figure it out. Um, why do we focus so much? Time? Well, not everybody does, but it's a tendency for people to really think that others are focusing so much on them, on everything that they say and do. That's very true. That's very, very true. Um, and again, I know part of the, part of that is um, probably how we're designed. Um, we want to survive, so we're always kind of checking about. Uh, and we, we want to survive, and we want to belong. So we're always checking others to make sure that our survival is okay. And and because we're social beings and want to belong, we're also checking to make sure we fit in. Okay. So. So some of it is really tied to very primitive kind of experiences for us, but but they get overdone, and we take them to an extreme, and they then then we're because it gets to that extreme, it's no longer useful for us, and instead it becomes destructive. Okay, so number three is recognize you're making an assumption that you know what another person is thinking or mind reading. Oh boy, we, <laughs> this, these sort of all really relate to each other. Um, but this is a pretty common thing that we do, really. Um, you know, we think that somebody's thinking something, and we can carry this on. Oh, my, my gosh, we can carry this on for days, weeks, years. Um, and yes. that person never had those thoughts. You know, correct. Why do we yes. do that to yeah. ourselves? Right, and 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 we rarely bother to check it out. So the other part is check it out. But just that, you know, just go up to the, you know, whoever you're concerned about, ask them, <laughs> right? It, 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 and, right. Then, and then you get it clarified, and you'll find out that you're you're generally off. Yeah, it's so true. Okay, and four, um, as you remain aware of this outside-in pattern, realize the thinking in this matter is a distraction from thoughts or feelings that are unpleasant and uncomfortable for you. And we've talked about this earlier, but... Um, Right. You say, ask yourself, right. what uncomfortable or unpleasant thoughts or feelings am I trying to keep out of my awareness? Right. Again, it's all, for me, it's a straightforward process. It's, it's rec- mm-hmm. recognizing, in essence, that you are projecting your experience on someone else. And you're thinking that they're thinking. You're thinking <laughs> they're thinking something that actually you're thinking. Right. And, and and so I'm trying to pull people out of that loop. Mm-hmm. It is. And, it's a mess. It's a rabbit hole. Yeah. Rabbit. yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and the way I describe it in the book is, is to imagine you're in the I think in the center of a circle, but it's it's as if all the eyes are you're looking through everybody out everybody's eyes looking at you before mm-hmm. again you're looking through your own, and I want you looking through your own. I want you to stand right. in you. And, and again, uh, you know, what, what am I, what's my experience? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What do I need? Um, and, and understand that most people are not doing what you think they're doing. That's right. And I think it's important for people to understand that um, your needs are not going to be everybody else's needs, that everybody has their own set of what's right for them and what's wrong for them, uh, you know, what boundaries are comfortable, what boundaries are uncomfortable, and um, that we have to claim that about ourselves. So this is who I am and this is, this is how I feel and these are what my needs are and accept that rather than trying to, um, you know, tamp it down and, and, and be embarrassed by that and think you should be like everybody else. Uh, absolutely true. Agree with you 100%. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So number six is, um, so this really is about what do I need, think, feel, or perceive right now? Right. And this is really about being back into that present moment. Um, Correct. What's so important about the present moment? That's where we live life. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's that's what's important about the present moment. It's the only place we live life. Everything else is uh, created in our minds. It's held in our minds. 
So um, we live life in the present moment. And, okay. and so it's, bring, it's, it's grounding you right back to the present so that you can, again, be in your experience and looking through your eyes. Okay. Well, wow. What a great way to end this. Thank you, Joan. Um, so we're talking about your book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity. This book is so valuable. Um, I think so many people should really read this because we all experience these things. And it's just simple, practical things that you have come up with that can really help us to um, learn to deal with our perceptions and our emotions. And um, you just really put it in such a, such a way that's easy to grasp. So thank you for, um, for the work you do. Thank you for this book. And it's really been great talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so very much. I, I'm <laughs> very touched by your words and for the opportunity to chat. <laughs> well, thank you again and have a really wonderful day. Take care. You too. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, bye. bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.